listening to The Itch, a podcast exploring all things allergy, asthma, and immunology. I'm your co-host, Courtney, a real-life allergy, asthma, and eczema girl. And I'm your second host, Dr. Payal Gupta, a board-certified allergy, asthma, and immunology doctor. Courtney and I hope to balance each other out so that we get you all the information that you want and need about allergies, asthma, and immunology. everyone. We wanted to do an episode about what happens after you get your food allergy diagnosis. So instead of us putting something together that we thought would be helpful, we actually turned to our listeners and asked, what were your big questions after receiving your child's diagnosis? Even though these questions are mainly for caregivers or came from caregivers, they definitely apply across the board to newly diagnosed adults since I think that most concerns are the same. In this part, so we're going to have two parts. This is part one. And in this part, we're going to answer your questions that are more medical based. And then part two, we're going to be joined by Stephanie Lowe, also known as Turn It Teal on the internet. And she's the mom who started the movement of lighting buildings teal in May. And she's going to join us for part two to answer the lifestyle questions like how to grocery shop and the emotional journey and so forth. Okay, so the first question is about understanding food allergies and knowing how severe they are. Unfortunately, a true food allergy is very dangerous, and we can't really determine by testing how severe of a reaction your child might have based solely on the size of the reaction to skin prick testing or the numbers on blood work. We really have to listen to the history and see what the previous reactions have been to the food. And unfortunately, every reaction can change depending on the exposure. I think that's probably why people feel so on edge with food allergies is that you can't predict the severity. And that leads us really nicely to our next question, which is what are the symptoms to look out for? So the early symptoms of an allergic reaction can be like a runny nose or a skin rash, and that's generally hives, or something that's like a strange feeling, and that's also been known as a sense of doom. And just on a side note, I've actually experienced the sense of doom, and I would say that it's kind of this feeling of something is just not right, and it's a very clear feeling that you experience, uh, and it's hard to say more than really it is a sense of doom, meaning like something's just changed, something's not going to be okay. And that's what I think people mean by a sense of doom. And then these symptoms can quickly lead to more serious problems. So the symptoms that the quad AI list are trouble breathing, swelling of the eyes, mouth, and tongue, tightness of the throat, hoarse voice, vomiting, abdominal pain, diarrhea, dizziness, fainting, low blood pressure, rapid heartbeat, the feeling of doom, and cardiac arrest, which means that the heart stops pumping. And, you know, note that most allergic reactions occur within the first hour of food ingestion. Oh, that's a good thing to note. Thank you. A lot of it sometimes is quickly onset, but sometimes it's not. Like I've had reactions where it's like immediate and I've had reactions where it's like 20 minutes later, something starts happening. So thank you. I like this question a lot and it's, what is anaphylaxis versus a quote-unquote normal allergic reaction? So anaphylaxis is a type of allergic reaction. Anaphylaxis is basically a serious allergic response that often involves swelling, hives, lowered blood pressure, and in severe cases, shock. And in really severe cases, it may even lead to death. 
So a major difference between anaphylaxis and other reactions, other allergic reactions, is that anaphylaxis typically involves more than one system of the body. So you mentioned a bunch of symptoms, but essentially it's two or more of those occurring at the same time. So for example, someone will have hives, which is involvement of the skin, and then also can have difficulty breathing, dizziness, or abdominal symptoms like vomiting or even diarrhea. And again, in severe cases, it can lead to shock where the blood pressure drops and the heart stops pumping, which can be life-threatening. And with other allergic reactions, you may only experience hive or mild itching of the mouth or maybe even mild swelling of the face, but you don't have that in conjunction with other symptoms. I think that's really clear to note when people hear two or more symptoms, that's when you give epinephrine a lot of times. So I think that makes a lot more sense. And that leads us to epinephrine, which seems to be a popular topic for people when they first get diagnosed, which makes sense because all of a sudden you have to carry around two of these big pens with you or little squares, depending on what you have. How does epinephrine work and what should we know about it? Yeah, so epinephrine is an injectable medication and it works to reverse all of the effects caused by an allergic reaction. So all of the symptoms that we just talked about. So with the blood vessels, it will help constrict the blood vessels to increase the blood pressure, which can go down during an allergic reaction. And then in the airways, it relaxes the smooth muscles to reduce the wheezing and improve breathing. And then in the heart, it actually stimulates the heart so that it pumps better. And then for the skin, it reduces the hives and the swelling that might occur around the face and lips. And how do you use and when should you use epinephrine? So epinephrine should really be used immediately if you experience severe symptoms like those of anaphylaxis. So especially if the symptoms start rapidly and affect, again, two or more systems, as we discussed, such as shortness of breath, repetitive coughing, you um, somebody starts feeling lightheaded or weak, generalized hives, tightness in the throat, trouble breathing, swallowing, any combination of different body areas coupled with the you know more severe things like vomiting, diarrhea, difficulty breathing, and then the rashes, you want to use epinephrine right away. The sooner you use it, the quicker you're going to stop that reaction from progressing. The other thing to note is that you might need to use more than one dose of epinephrine. And that's why whenever you get your epinephrine device, it always comes with this in a set of two. So wherever you are, you should really be carrying two devices with you, not just one. And that's if the first one doesn't work right, you want to have the second one available, or if after 15 to 20 minutes, you're still not feeling well, or even 10 minutes, things are still progressing, you can use the second epinephrine. If you're not certain on whether or not a reaction warrants epinephrine, you should use it right away because the benefits of epinephrine far outweigh the risks. And even though that dose might not have been necessary, it's okay to use it. Again, the benefit far outweighs the risks. You know, all of this should always be discussed with your doctor because they know you or your child the best so that they can give you guidance on when you need to use epinephrine for your particular food allergy. But those are general guidelines on what we recommend. Also, after you use your epinephrine, you should always go to the emergency room or see your doctor, depending on the time of day and depending on their availability and depending on your symptoms. If you're still feeling sick, you should definitely go to the emergency room. 
And the other thing to note is because it's an injectable medication means that there is a needle in the device and that should never be thrown away in the garbage. You should always take the device that you used to the emergency room or to your doctor so that they can be disposed of in the proper container because you don't want to throw it away in the regular trash because somebody could get hurt. That's really good to know because I have a collection of expired EpiPens and I take those to the um, pharmacy because I don't know if I can't put them in the garbage. I just don't think that's okay. Just a quick question about your use of epinephrine. Will they have a bruise on their thigh? Um, so they could, you can have some bruising depending on, you know, what area you hit. If you hit the superficial blood vessel, then you might have a little bit more bruising. But, you know, the other thing to note is that you're going to do the epinephrine through your clothes. So you don't need to take off your child's clothes or take off your own clothes in order to give it. You would give it through the clothes and it's usually done in the thigh which is a really big muscle because it does need to go in the muscle. I think just a general note to remember, and I like this, is epi first, epi fast. I like that. Yeah. And Allergies Together has a whole campaign about that. So that's good to know. If you have to take off your pants, you can't do epi too fast. That brings us to the next question is how to use epinephrine. And this is dependent on the type of device. And we'll definitely include how to do that in the show notes. We're not going to go into the individual details of each type of injector. Yeah, there's a lot of different companies that make a lot of different types of epinephrine devices that are used in different ways. So it's really important to review the proper technique with your doctor, your pharmacist, and or also by watching videos at home if you need to, but make sure that they're coming from credible sites. And we will include those in again in our show notes. You know, usually you will have a practice device also included with the epinephrine that you get. And so it's important to actually practice with it and make sure everyone at home is comfortable using it. It's also important to store the practice device in a totally different place from the actual device. You don't want someone to reach for the practice device that doesn't have medication in it during an actual reaction. But again, everybody at home should know how to use it. Everybody that is around your child should understand how to use it, should understand exactly where it's stored. And for my adult patients, I also tell them to let their coworkers know at work that they have a food allergy and where they store their epinephrine so that if they do have a reaction at work, they have somebody that knows exactly where their epinephrine device is. That's a really good tip to have people around you know how to use it. I have a video actually on my Instagram and on YouTube that I can link to where I practice using expired EpiPens on an orange. And I was really surprised at how I had thought I knew what I was doing, but actually doing it was like a shock to my system. And it's I just have to reiterate that you should definitely practice because if you are in a situation where you are having a reaction, you don't know emotionally what state you'll be in. So having that muscle memory of practicing with your device, or I have two different types of devices, so practicing both of those equally will really give you a peace of mind in case you do go into reaction. Yeah. And that goes into our next question that we were asked, which is, are there other epinephrine alternatives available? There are lots of different epinephrine or adrenaline auto injectors on the market. And I'll just name some of them. And I'll include a link in our show notes to this really great article written by Kids with Food Allergies. And that post lists them in more details, shares how to get discounts and how to use each one of them. So here are a few that you might have heard of. There's 
epinephrine injection, there's adrenoclic, there's OvaQ, there's EpiPen, EpiPen Junior, there's a bunch of generic versions, and there's a newer one I've never heard of called Simjepi. Uh, correct me if I'm wrong. Maybe you guys know how to pronounce it better. And if you're in Europe, you might have Emirate, which is what I carry. And other than epinephrine, what about using Benadryl or other antihistamines? Yeah. And, you know, one quick thing that I want to point out about allergic reactions is that as soon as someone's having an allergic reaction, one other important thing to keep in mind is you always want to lay the person down. You want to get them low to the ground so that they can't fall. You want to get them laying down so that if their blood pressure does drop, they don't lose all their blood flow to their brain and heart. So laying somebody down is super important. Okay, that's really important. I've actually never heard that. Yeah, it's something that every doctor kind of knows, but I don't know if we necessarily relay that to our patients often, but it's super important and it can really help delay the progression, the symptoms related to hypotension, especially it can delay dizziness, it can delay passing out, and it can delay that decrease of blood flow to the heart. So it's just something really helpful and important to remember. You just want to lie the person down instead of having them stay up. And then as far as Benadryl and other antihistamines, they are super important. And especially if it's a mild reaction, itching of the mouth, a little bit of hives, then you can usually use Benadryl. I like Benadryl better than other antihistamines generally, because I feel like it's a little bit stronger, but every allergist might have a little bit of a different take on it. So you really want to ask your allergist about what they prefer. I think for children, liquid Benadryl is a really good alternative than having them swallow a pill, especially if they're having an allergic reaction or the dissolvable caps. Yes. So exactly. So kids usually take liquid medications and dissolving pills and adults also actually can take dissolving pills. You would just maybe need to take two instead of one. So I do recommend finding different alternatives at the pharmacy as opposed to a big pill that you need to swallow when you're already not feeling well. I carry liquid and pills and I like liquid better. I think it's just because that's always what I've used and that's what I know. Yeah, I think it's easier. You don't have to worry about having water. You can just kind of swallow it really quickly. And again, if you're having any difficulty swallowing or anything, it's just a little bit easier to have liquid go down or definitely a dissolving pill. So the next question would be, why does my child have so many food allergies? So an important statistic to remember is that almost one third of people with a food allergy have reactions to more than one type of food. For children, eggs, milk, and peanuts are the most common causes of food allergies, with wheat, soy, and tree nuts also included on the list. And then peanuts, tree nuts, shellfish, and fish commonly cause the most severe reactions. And nearly 5% of children under the age of five years have food allergies. There's a lot of people with food allergies, and having more than one food allergen is common. There's also another form of allergy called oral allergy syndrome. So oral allergy syndrome is a type of allergy that is a cross-reactivity where the proteins in one substance, typically pollen, are similar to the proteins found in another substance, typically food. So for example, if you're allergic to birch tree pollen, you may also find that eating apples raw apples especially, causes a reaction for you. And certain tree nuts also demonstrate cross-reactivity for people with a 
different pollen allergies. What this means is that usually with oral allergy syndrome, we see it all year round, but I find that it does happen more often, maybe during pollen season, where you're already kind of getting triggered by that pollen. And then if you eat an apple on top, you might notice that itching a little bit more. And again, it usually happens more with the raw or uncooked form of the food. Would something like a raw apple giving you itchy mouth and it being oral allergy syndrome, would you call that a true allergy to apple? No, it's an oral allergy syndrome. So anything that falls under oral allergy is not a true allergy in the sense of patients who have just oral allergy syndrome and don't have any other allergens. I won't even give them an epinephrine device usually unless they're really nervous or unless they've had a more severe reaction, then I will consider giving them an epinephrine device. But for the most part, they don't need an epinephrine device. So I wouldn't consider that a true food allergy. I would consider the oral allergy syndrome as more of a a sensitivity than any other allergen where they've experienced more severe symptoms like the hives, the difficulty breathing, vomiting, any of those things. Those are the true allergens. And usually even on skin testing, the oral allergy syndrome foods will not even turn out positive. It'll only be the birch tree that comes up positive. But if I test for apple, it'll usually be negative or even mildly positive. Hmm, That's really interesting to know because I was never sure if I could call all of the foods that I know are attached to a birch pollen allergy as an allergy or OAS. I was never sure what the proper language to use around them, but I, I just completely avoid them altogether. Yeah. So, I mean, one thing that I learned from hanging out with you and Allie and Amanda was that, you know, oral allergy syndrome can be scary because that sensation of itching in the mouth is usually an indicator for you or anyone with a food allergy that you might have encountered an allergen and that could lead to a severe reaction. And so I get it that you would want to avoid it, but technically speaking, you don't necessarily need to avoid it. And with apples in particular, peeling the skin of the apple could also probably help where you may be able to eat it raw because the skin is usually what has the proteins that are similar to birch tree pollen. Again, it's really up to the person. If it's causing more anxiety to try to eat those foods and have that itching in the mouth, I totally understand avoidance, but I have a lot of patients who don't avoid the foods that cause their oral allergies. Yeah, itching in my mouth is generally an automatic panic trigger for me because it's generally the first symptom I get for an an allergic reaction. And I meet these people who eat apples because of OAS, so they get an itchy mouth, but they still eat them. And I just, I could never fathom why they would do that. But that makes a lot of sense hearing this, that they've never experienced worsening symptoms or anaphylaxis. So they don't think that itchy mouth can lead to worse things. Mm -hmm. So the next question is a great one because I actually have developed more food allergies as I got older. And someone asked, is there a chance of developing more allergies? So maybe you could go into more detail because I kind of answered it. (laughs) Yeah. So in regards to what you said, we can see that. And in a recent survey done by Dr. Ruchi Gupta, who we had also interviewed earlier, and her team, they found that when they surveyed adults, an estimated 10.8% were allergic at the time of the survey, whereas nearly 19% of adults believed that they were food allergic. So what does that mean? That means that nearly half of food allergic adults had at least one adult onset food allergy and 38 
85% reported at least one food allergy, which was related to emergency department visits in their lifetime. So these findings suggest that food allergies are common and severe among U.S. adults, and often they're starting in adulthood. So yes, you can technically develop food allergies at any time, but I don't feel like this should be an anxiety provoking fact for people because if you have one food allergen, you have to remember that you're prepared to deal with a reaction. You have an epi device, you know what symptoms to look out for, and you hopefully have an allergist that you can turn to for consultation. So I think keeping this fact in mind is very important. Obviously, still very scary and not something that people want to deal with at all, but also should not be a cause for unnecessary testing or anxiety. We have to remember that routine screening without a history of allergic food reactions might lead to unnecessary food avoidance who can actually tolerate the food, which impacts their quality of life and potentially their nutrition. In addition, we know that food avoidance also increases the risk of developing an allergy to that food. So again, it's important that children with multiple food allergies not limit their diet beyond the foods for which they have actually been diagnosed as being allergic. Because Honestly, we know as physicians, we see this all the time, that it's common for families to be so concerned they won't introduce other major food allergy groups into their child's diet, despite having that negative diagnostic tests to those particular foods. And so I usually have those parents come back in and bring that food in that they're worried about giving and do an oral food challenge in the office, or just have them eat it in my waiting room so that they know that I'm around if anything were to happen. At the end of the day, you need a proper diagnosis with accurate history, either skin prick testing, or serum IgE testing, which is a blood test, and then again, potentially a food challenge if any of those things seem confusing. Yes, you are so right. Do not limit your diet unless you have to and get tested because you might outgrow them, which actually is another question. Can you outgrow an allergy? Yes. So regarding outgrowing food allergies, about 60 to 80% of young children with a milk or egg allergy are able to have those foods without a reaction by the time they reach age 16. And recent studies suggest that children with egg or milk allergies who can eat those foods in baked form, like a muffin, and don't have a reaction are very likely to be able to tolerate plain egg or plain milk in the future. Some other food allergies, however, are less likely to be outgrown. And these foods are also common allergens and include peanuts, tree nuts, the fin fish, and the shellfish. They tend to cause more severe food allergy reactions. And for peanut, for example, only 20% of children who have a peanut allergy will outgrow it. But that's still 20%. So it is possible. For tree nuts, that number is lower. It's 14% will lose that allergy. And then and with shellfish or other fish, finned fish, they call them, only four to five percent of children will be able to eat those foods later in life without a reaction. So it looks like adults might not have so much hope. That's okay. <laughs> Anyhow, so the next question is, should I be concerned about asthma and eczema if I have a food allergy diagnosis? In a person with food allergies, having other allergic conditions like asthma and eczema may be common. And we discussed the link with eczema and food allergies in episode two. So make sure to check that out. The take home is that 
It is important to take good care of the skin because it is our first line of defense. Breaks in the skin can lead to food sensitization. So it's important to keep this barrier intact. And again, we discussed this in more detail in episode two. And as for asthma and food allergies, we have also mentioned this topic in part one of our asthma series, which is episode number seven. Because symptoms of food allergy can also look like and worsen asthma, it is important to understand that if an asthma attack doesn't seem to be getting better with asthma medications and is progressively worsening and you or your child have an existing food allergy, if food was consumed within the last hour, it could actually be a reaction to food. And so you should use an epinephrine device at that time. So again, using epinephrine will not hurt, but this is only my opinion and you should always discuss this with your doctor. But again, if you have asthma and food allergies, sometimes it can get confusing. And if your asthma medication doesn't seem to be working, you've eaten recently, And it's a possibility that the food may have gotten cross-contaminated with a food allergen and things aren't getting better or you feel like you're getting sick, you should use your epinephrine dice. Thank you for reminding us that an asthma attack can also occur during an allergic reaction and that if you do have an asthma attack as your first symptom, think about the circumstances why you might be having that attack and whether it is actually an allergic reaction. Yep, exactly. So if it's not getting better with your usual inhaler and you're just feeling worse and things just aren't getting better, make sure that you haven't eaten anything that could have been a food allergy. The next question is how to understand the testing process. That's a pretty loaded question. And we actually have dedicated a whole episode to that. So check that out. We will link it in the show notes that's episode five it's very exciting we're just sending you all to our other episodes we've covered a lot in less than a year it seems so we'll link all of those but we go into detail about the different types of food allergy testing and how to understand them so check that out we won't go further into detail about that today so that means we are at the last question for this part of the newly diagnosed question and answer and the question was can i get a follow-up appointment You can absolutely get a follow-up appointment. I know for my clinic, at any time when a family or a patient need to discuss their food allergy in more detail, they can absolutely schedule an appointment at any time. And as a general rule, I want to see my food allergic patients at least once a year so that I can renew their epinephrine device, and we can talk about anything else that's happened within the past year. And sometimes, depending on the patient, I might even want to see them every six months. And at any time, if there is a new reaction, I need to see them in clinic, period. So yes, you can absolutely have a follow-up appointment at any time. Once you're diagnosed, it doesn't mean that you can't go back in. You can go back in and see your doctor at any time. And I think that's probably going to hold true for most allergists out there. That's also a good thing to note is that if you do have a reaction to go see your allergist, because you guys need to update our histories as patients. Yeah. And we need to see, you know, before you start avoiding a food that you think you might have reacted to, we want to talk about the reaction and figure out exactly what happened and maybe do some more testing with the foods that you're worried about 
and figure out if it is a true allergen or maybe something else had happened that day. Well, it looks like those are actually all of the questions we have in our medical and science part of this series. And the most that are left over are lifestyle questions, which we will get to next time with Stephanie. Yeah, and that was actually a great episode. So we can't wait to share that with you guys. Awesome. Well, have a great rest of your week, everyone. And stay tuned for more lifestyle stuff coming up. Thank you for listening to today's episode. Remember that all information you hear today is for informational purposes only and are not intended to serve as a substitute for the consultation, diagnosis, and or medical treatment of a qualified physician or healthcare provider. And also don't forget to subscribe to our podcast. And if you have a second, help spread the word by rating our podcast and sharing with your friends and family who might also be interested in learning more about allergies, asthma, and immunology. You can always stay up to date by checking out our Instagram, The Itch Podcast, where you can leave questions you are itching to know, or check out our website, which is www.itchpodcast.com, which contains more information about the subjects we covered in today's episode and every episode. Until next time, have a fabulous week.